What a joy to bring the word this morning. As we have been doing God's generals under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we are believing God that the revival that we have seen before, we will see it again. I don't know if you, watch, you noticed in worship this morning that song that we were singing, Lord, do it again. It's a prayer that God can do what He has done before. And we are expecting that as we pray and we go on our knees, that God will bring this revival, this awakening in our city, Johannesburg, and in our nation. I don't know if you have faith for that. I just like how Mbali challenged us about the declaration. It's believing that what we say, it's true and it's factual. So it's the same with our prayers. May we pray prayers that we believe the promises of God are true and they are effectual. I just was encouraged and challenged by what Pastor Roger started with, remembering that whenever we do and we speak about the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Johannesburg, in Gauteng, in South Africa, and to the ends of the world. That's a Simon paraphrased version of the Bible. But we are called to move in the power and the gifts of the Spirit. Weren't you just encouraged and challenged by Nicholas Bengu's story? So today we get to look at one of the heroes of the faith, John Wesley. But I want to just read this quotation for you. From the original Pentecost to Pentecost revivals of the 21st century, God has breathed new life into the hearts of His followers calling them to deeper levels of intimacy, holiness, and a personal understanding of His love. Today, we will be looking at the impact of one of these revivalists, one of these heroes, and we want to pray this prayer, say, Lord, you can do it again. Lord, you can do it again. So I'm going to speak on behalf of John Wesley this morning. This will be something I'll narrate for a few minutes, and then we'll go back into the preaching of the Word. So come, join with me, and hear what the Lord has for us through the story. My name is John Wesley. I know I look a little bit darker and have lost lots of hair from the last time you saw me. I was born on the 17th of June, 1703, in Epworth, England. I'm the 15th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. My father and mother had a total of 19 children. Yep. Unfortunately, only 10 of us lived beyond infancy. We were members of the Church of England. Our parents gave us good education, including my sisters. At the time, girls were not expected to study. Our mother taught us to read as soon as we could walk and talk. We were expected to be proficient in Latin and Greek and to have learned major portions of the New Testament by heart, meaning we had to memorize Scripture. We did not see the value of this discipline until later. Our mother used to spend one hour a week with each, with each one of us, checking how we were doing spiritually and emotionally. She would also take time alone to pray. Whenever we saw her apron on her head, we knew that she was praying and we would stay away. We were taught to pray in the morning, at midday, and evening. We were not allowed to eat between meals. 
My father was a rector of a small parish in Epworth. He worked long hours overseeing the spiritual needs of several neighboring towns. When he was able, he dedicated himself to rigorous study, often locked away in his office, constructing sermons, writing poetry, or composing songs. With our father being on the road a lot, including spending months on end in London, I'm grateful that our mother was there for us. Under our mother's tutelage, we learned discipline, studied history, literature, classic languages, music, and most importantly, scriptures. Every moment from dawn until dusk was structured. The rod was not spared. And everybody said, Amen. The rod was not spared. Formal and mannerly behavior of every kind was taught, and obedience was always required. This is what my mother used to say. I insist upon conquering the will of children betimes, meaning early in life, because this is the only strong and rational foundation of a religious education, without which both precept and example will be ineffectual. We all left home with a trained mind, a pure heart, and a sincere passion for the Lord. On the evening of the 9th of February, 1709, I was only five years old. Disaster struck. Sometimes between 11 and 12 o'clock at midnight, our home was set ablaze. The roof of the house came down, caught fire, and my family left the house and I was still sleeping inside. My parents gathered the children, ran downstairs out of the house. After counting all the children, my father and mother noticed that I was still inside. I guess that's to be expected with 10 children. My father tried to go back inside, but was not able to because of the flames. My mother was searching frantically for me outside the house. At that point, my family gathered around and started praying for me commending me to God. I then woke up groggily to the flickering light, thinking it was morning. When I realized it was flames of fire, I jumped off the bed and I ran to the window and climbed up on a chest and saw several neighbors and servants scurrying about trying to quench the fire. I started waving and one of the neighbors noticed me and he quickly climbed atop another man's shoulders and he pulled me off to safety mere moments before the remainder of the roof collapsed. From that moment on, my mother was convinced that I had a special call of God in my life. Truly, I was a brand plucked out of the fire, according to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2. When I turned 11, I was sent to Charterhouse School in London and later went to Oxford. Even though being away from home gave me some freedom, I chose to keep the disciplines my mother taught us. I prayed and read the scriptures in the morning and in, in the evening. I became known for my unflappable demeanor and self-control. As Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. While, ex while at Oxford, my brother and two fellow students formed a small club for the purpose of study and pursuit of a devout Christian life. I later joined them and started leading the group. The group increased in number and in commitment. 
Notice how the group increased after I joined them. I guess you can call me the founding father of small groups. We met daily from 6 until 9 for prayer, psalms, reading of Greek New Testament. We fasted twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays until 3 o'clock, as was commonly observed. We visited prisoners, poor people, and preached the gospel to them. We also paid their debts and cared for the sick. Other university students and intellects started calling us Bible bigots, religious fanatics, Methodists, and later the Holy Club. This was a title of derision, but this did not deter us. Among the original members was George Whitefield, a fiery young man. I had a struggle in my soul as the external rigors of righteousness did not render within me the inner peace I was hoping for. While on the voyage to the colonies of Georgia, now called the United States of America, my brother and I came into contact with the Moravian settlers. I was challenged by their deep faith and spirituality rooted in pietism. At one point on the voyage, a storm came up and broke the mast of the ship. While the English panicked, the Moravians calmly sang hymns and prayed. This experience led me to believe the Moravians possessed an inner strength which I lacked. On the 24th of May, 1738, I recounted my Elders Gate experience in my journal. This I write. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Elders Gate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine. While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. A few weeks later, I preached a sermon on the doctrine of personal salvation by faith which was followed by another, which was grace, free in all, and free for all. Due to this amazing revelation, we were excluded from the Church of England. We started preaching in open airs and to miners and villagers, and this was the beginning of the Methodist Church. When I look back at my life, the one area which, we, which I wish I could have done better is when it came to romantic relationships. Yep. Though I finally got married to Molly, we had a troubled marriage. She left me several times, but returned in response to my entreaties. Through persecutions and challenges, many lives were changed by the power of the gospel. We experienced many miracles, and those who were sick got healed. I have frequently said that it is not sin to be sick or die. It is, however, sin to be, for sickness and death to go unchallenged because there's no one to pray. Three things that were burning in my heart at the time was personal spirituality, purity, and a care for the needy. These are my last words to you. Set yourself on fire and people will come watch you burn. Make all you can, 
save all you can, and give all you can. The best thing of all is God is with us. Amen. John Wesley was one of those guys who said, I look at the world as my parish. I look at anyone who has not given their lives to Christ as one I need to preach the word and the gospel to. John Wesley, they say about him, he traveled 250,000 miles on horseback preaching the gospel. That's about going around the world 10 times. He preached over 40,000 sermons in 15 years. And I thought to myself, Brother Greg, our work is cut out. John Wesley and Charles were among the most notable evangelists who ever lived. They learned that works cannot save and discovered salvation by faith and faith in Christ alone. Charles was a songwriter. One of the songs that he wrote is one of the songs we still sing today. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldest die for me? Shakespearean language, so anointed. This morning, I want us to focus on three things. The first thing is the mother's influence. A mother's influence or parents' influence on the children. Discipleship starts at home. Let's just stay there for a little bit. There is something that happens when parents take their responsibility, when we start to disciple our children at home. We should not abdicate our responsibility to disciple our children at home. The first sermons our children should hear should be from their parents. We need to train up our children. They need to see us in the Word and in prayer. They need to see us being generous. They need to see us saving other people because we are a scripture that they will read. So as Susanna Wesley was there for John and Charles Wesley, I'm challenged to say, what am I doing to disciple my children? What am I doing to help them understand the power of Scripture, the power of the Word to transform lives? Another great story in the Bible is the one from 2 Timothy chapter, five, chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm persuaded now lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit, of God, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Now, when I look at this portion of Scripture, every time I read it, I ask myself, where are the fathers? Where were the grandfathers? Where were they to be there for Timothy? I'm grateful that Paul showed up later and he discipled Timothy further. But the impact of the mother and the grandmother, he says that the faith that lived in your grandmother and your mother now lives in you. And I encourage you to fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. Are you fanning into flame the gift of God that are in you? The one way to fan into flame the gift of God that I knew is to become a vessel of revival. That is my challenge to you this morning. Will we become vessels of revival? Will we become vessels that carry the presence of God? Will we become vessels that carry the power of God? I'm grateful that, that, that Susanna Wesley was there. The Moravian brothers were there for this gentleman, John and Charles Wesley. And I'm here to say to you, I'm grateful for my dad for teaching me to memorize Scripture. Yes, my father was not perfect, but he did his best to get me to memorize Scripture. I'm trying to do the same with my kids, 
We're still getting there slowly. I'm grateful to my mother for being a praying mother. To this day, I'm standing here because of her prayers. I'm grateful to Reverend Tom, uh, Thomas Resani, who used to lead the Youth for Christ movement. We used to go to this Youth for Christ conferences, Youth for Christ camps. And it was at one of these camps that I recommitted my life to the Lord because he preached from Psalm 139, God knows everything about you. Needless to say, it was at that very camp when I gave my life to the Lord that I saw Lindy for the very first time. Thank God for camps. Amen. Just to say there's a young adult camp coming up in November. I just thought I should throw it in there, you know. It was at that very camp when I recommitted my life to the Lord. I saw her, but God was working in my heart, and I just had to focus. But the Lord saw the prayer of my heart. I am grateful to the Lord for my maths teacher who was here on the 30th of July who discipled me and showed me how family should be. I'm grateful to the Lord for Mama Caroline back at the church where I used to be at high school. She was one of those praying mothers. Every church needs praying mothers. I tell you, when they begin to pray, the power of God comes down. Brenda Guttrell is one of them. She's like one of our praying mothers here. She, Brenda and Frank, they're always constantly praying for us. Can we just honor them today? I just feel like we should honor you guys. Constantly praying for us. Thank you. Whenever we travel, Brenda and Frank, they will ask us, guys, what can we pray for? And they're constantly praying for us. So I remember Mama Caroline when I was a teenager. We used to go to her house every Friday night when it was school time for all-night prayer. Not half-night prayer, all-night prayer. We will pray through the night, and that's how I was discipled in prayer. I remember at Mama Caroline's house, her carpet had the spots, that, uh, the dots that were black, and we would pray for the spots as people and millions of people coming into the kingdom of God. And I believe that I'm seeing those prayers being answered today. I'm seeing those prayers being answered today. We would go on Saturday morning after the all-night prayer to the hospitals, and we would see hospital beds being emptied. Because we had prayed and God confirmed his word with signs and wonders. And that's the scripture I want us to read. The influence of the Holy Spirit. The hallmark of every revival is hunger of heart. The heart's pursuit of a personal relationship with Christ. The heart's longing to experience God's presence. And the heart's cry to worship God in spirit and in truth. Mark 16, verse 14, we'll read it together. Later, Jesus appeared to the elders as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he'd risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. In my name, they will speak out in new tongues. In my name, they will pick up snakes with their hands. In my name, when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. In my name, they will place their hands on the sick and they will be healed. And the Lord Jesus had spoken to them. He was taken up into heaven and he said to the right hand of God, then the disciples went out and preached everywhere 
and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his words by signs and wonders. When I read this portion of scripture, the Bible speaks about the fact that signs and wonders followed the preaching of the word. The Bible speaks of the fact that God worked with them and confirmed his words by signs that accompanied the word. I just want to put this to you this morning, that one of the reasons why we don't see signs and wonders today, it is because, myself included, we want to see people healed. We want to see signs and wonders and miracles so we can be celebrated. But actually, we don't want to see signs and wonders accompanying the Word. So I'm here to announce to you this morning that for signs and wonders to be seen, we have to preach the Word. We have to preach the Gospel. As we preach the gospel, signs and wonders will follow. Just watch the example of John and Charles Wesley. As they went out to preach the word, signs and wonders followed. It is in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12. The Bible says, I am watching to see my word fulfilled so I can perform it. So God is looking for his word. God is watching for the preaching of His Word. God is watching for us to share the good news with others. As we do that, signs and wonders will follow. Signs and wonders will follow. And we trust and believe that we will see those signs and wonders. How desperate and hungry are we for the move of the Spirit? How desperate are we for the gifts of the Spirit? Our level of desperation will determine our level of impact. If we are desperate, our level of desperation will determine our level of impact. So I'm trusting God that we'll see signs and wonders in the marketplace. I'm trusting God that we'll see signs and wonders in the hospitals again. I know that God can do it again. But signs and wonders follow the preaching of the Word. God is watching to perform His Word. When John, and Wesley, when John Wesley found the truth, it changed his life, and he dedicated his life to preaching the gospel of the salvation of grace, and signs and wonders followed. It was 1742, John Wesley writes in his journal, and I thank God that this guy is used to journal. I think we can do better. He writes in his journal that in December of, 19, of 1742, one of his colleagues fell ill, he himself fell ill, John, but he got better very soon. And on December 25th, on Christmas Day, Mr. Merrick was declared dead. And they called John Wesley and others. They came, and when they arrived, they found his body was already cold. And John said, we started praying for him until he came back to life. On Christmas Day, when we're, people are celebrating the birth of Jesus, they saw a dead man come back to life. And this wasn't the only miracles they experienced. They saw many other miracles. And I'm challenged that even though I've prayed for so many dead bodies to come back to life, none of them has come back to life, but I'm not going to stop. I am not going to stop. And I encourage you not to stop. When you see someone sick, when you see someone dead, before you call the paramedics, just pray for them. I've done that several times. Trust in God. That if it is will that they come back to life, they will come back to life. I want to conclude with um, influencing society. When you read God's generals, you get so impacted by the lives of these men and women. For these generals, personal revival led to national revival. 
it began with a complete trust in the Lord, a profound reverence for God, and a determination to overcome the social ills each saw oppressing his or her generation. They were troubled by what they saw in their generation, and they did something about it. The revivalists transformed lives, and this led to the transformation of communities and nations. John Wesley was credited for starving off a bloody revolution in England, similar to what occurred in France. Also credited for raising lay preachers, impact on theology, the birth and growth of the Methodist church, because daily habits translated to a hunger for God, and that led to revival. Daily habits. You ask yourself, why do I need this daily habits of being in the Word, of being in prayer? It is because a hunger is created when we're in the Word, when we're in prayer, to see the move of the Spirit. Wesley used all the prophets from his literary works for charitable purposes. He spoke out strongly against slave trade. He wrote a letter to William Wilberforce and encouraged him, keep going. Numerous agencies promoting Christian work arose, prison reform groups and relief agencies to the poor. Numerous missionary societies were formed. The Religious Tract Society and British Foreign Bible Society. Hospitals and schools were multiplied because of revival. It was in 1928, Archbishop Davidson from the Anglican Church, the same church where they were kicked out. By the way, John Wesley refused to be kicked out. He remained a minister of the Anglican Church even when he planted another church. He was quite stubborn. The Archbishop said this about him. Wesley practically changed the outlook and even the character of the English nation. Don't you want that to be written about you? <laughs> that you did something in this lifetime that changed a nation forever. Don't you want to be mentioned as one of those that went on their knees and prayed for this nation? That is why I'm saying we want to be vessels of revival. That can only happen if we go on our knees and pray and cry to the Lord for this nation and for the city. It is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where the Bible says, If my people, not everyone else, if my people, if God's people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will hear from heaven. I will come down, forgive them, and heal the land. So out of the scripture, God is challenging us to go on our knees and pray for revival. You know, without the influence of the Methodist movement, they say that industrial revolution would not have caused the social change that it did. So industrial revolution would have happened, but they needed revival. They needed men and men, men and women who were submitted to Christ. On Friday, we were sitting with a group of leaders, and one of them asked me, Pastor Signs, also to Lindy, what do you guys see in 10 years? What do you guys see for every nation, Joburg? And I remember that it was in 2016, we had a week of fasting and prayer. And when we were at the half-night prayer, God gave us this word. And this is our prayer. This is our dream. And I would like you to stand with me. I know we've done declaration before, but let's stand together and pray this prayer together. Let's stand together and pray this prayer together. We pray this prayer believing that God can do it again. Amen. We believe that God can do it again. 
I pray that every nation, Joburg, will join arms with the body of Christ and turn the city of gold to the city of God. I pray that God will use us to rebuild this great and prosperous city. I pray that Joburg will be open to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a city of peace, hope, and love, where the presence of God resides, a city of great opportunities, amazing innovations, job creation, and a thriving marketplace a city of great leaders and good governance, a city where children and women, men are safe, a city that embraces the homeless, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, a city that is intolerant of poverty, crime, and corruption, a city that feeds the nation, a truly world-class African city. God bless Johannesburg. Let's thank God together. Let's thank God together. Father, we believe you can do it again. Lord, we stand this morning and we ask that we will become vessels of revival. Lord, we pray that, God, we will look at Joburg different to the way we've looked at it before. But we believe that, God, you can bring revival to the city. Lord, we are inspired, we are challenged seeing the lives of men and women who dedicated themselves to prayer and to effective study of the Word and how they turned their nations upside down. Father, we may think that we are inadequate, but we refuse to believe that we are inadequate. We refuse to believe that. We believe and trust that with you, Lord, we can change our nation. We can change the state of corruption in this nation. We can change the state of poverty in this nation. We can change crime in this nation. We believe it in the name of Jesus. This morning, friends, I want us to dedicate ourselves to be vessels of revival. There's a prayer I want to read for us that you might have had been prayed before. Marianne Williamson writes this prayer. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us. It is in all of us. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Father, we trust you for that freedom this morning. God, I pray that we will not settle for less. Lord, I pray even as we see the stage under construction, we know it's not the final picture. Lord, our lives sometimes look like this. It feels like we, we've got it all together. We are functional, but there's more. There's more that you have for us. And I pray this morning that all of us will walk out of here and find someone we can disciple. Find someone that we can pour our lives into. Because it is in that that signs and wonders will follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's give God a round of praise.